the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And the top of to uh, top of the evening to you as well. I'm trying to get my thoughts together here as I look at all my notes and uh, talk about what we're going to talk about today on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I do want to welcome you. Another gorgeous beginning of the week. Another wonderful end of the week. And I trust that you are well and that you are ready to engage your thoughts on the topic and issues that come forth from this program on Mondays. We are moving well towards the end of October into November. And you know what that means? It's cooler. And uh, the weather will be a little bit more challenging for you. And you might be inclined to some anxiety, some some depression, some uh, moodiness. And therefore, you and I want to be very, very careful to know that this time of the year, as we move into uh, the deep elements of fall and the seasonal components that come with it, Thanksgiving and Christmas, we need to be very careful, prudent, thoughtful and uh, circumspect. So I want to welcome you to the Monday edition of Lifeline. You're a host. As you heard our announcer say it shortly, Jesse Gistan, glad to be with you. Well, alive and healthy, I think, as far as I can tell. And um, just thankful for another evening to to chat with you. The number is one 888 Three six seven five three two nine. The number to call if you have a topic, um, a point of view, an issue you think is worthy of our audience's listening and affirmation or rejection. This is an open forum. The consequent of a constitutional right, the uh, vigilance and diligence of a society that continues to press towards a um, law-abiding constitutional structure of government where we can say what we want to within reason, within parameters, within the um, boundaries of uh, civil discourse, if you will topic I've been thinking about and considering at length here uh, over the last several years, particularly as things become much more heated in the world of politics with regards to people's views about their man or the other man. And uh, of lately, there has been a fury, as you know, of hostility and, and relentless dumping on President Trump. Uh, Let me say this to you, child of God, as we are moving towards uh, local elections and uh, national elections on November 6th. And uh, we'll have Todd Davis in next week, uh, Lord willing, to kind of recharge your thoughts. If you are people who live in Hayward and you do care about your Hayward school district, he wants to be on the board. And I think he would be a good man for the choice. Getting to know him here recently. Any little bit can help us if we are talking about having our kids have a better chance at a quality education and therefore uh, quality choices for for life vocation and things of that nature. We'll talk about that. But maybe perhaps there are a lot of you who do vote. And if you do vote, then by all means, get out and vote next week. But yeah. Let's think about this now. Remember what our Lord said in John chapter 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, then my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what was our master saying by that proposition? You got to think about it carefully now. 
My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that it should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from this world. And he's explaining the ethic and the protocol and the approach, the approach that the gospel would have to have over the course of now almost 2000 years, 1984, uh, 85, almost to be exact, uh, since the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and his reign in the uh, Anno Domino uh, period in which you and I live, uh, the year of our Lord. Uh, how has the gospel succeeded from country to country, from nation to nation up to this time? Has it really been by taking out the sword or imposing uh, political views at such a level that it denies the essential message of peace and righteousness and redemption and uh, grace from Jesus Christ? Or has it really been by that, that ethic that our Lord gave the disciples and therefore us about being at peace with all men? striving to walk in a pattern of humility, um, taking opportunity if it is given to you to be freed from slavery, as Paul said, uh, one of the more glaring contradictions and burdens that were on the people of God's neck in the days of um, the apostles was prominent worldwide slavery. Um, and, And Paul really did speak to it in a way that was in keeping with the gospel and not falling prey to some kind of politicized, uh, uh, you know, as it were, um, social justice activism that leads to a departure from the central objective of gospel preaching and gospel witnessing and gospel living. It's a real danger in our present culture and has been for decades uh, a shift from uh, the work of the spirit to the work of the flesh to try to accomplish righteousness in our world. We want to be very careful when God calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that your role becomes radically different than it was before. Now, this really does raise the ire and and often the rancor of people who are so politically driven that I have to ask the question, is your kingdom of this world in such a way that it creates, you know, arguments and debates and hostilities and divisions and squabbles and left and right and, you know, black and white and Republican, conservative and liberal and and, 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 and conservative, et cetera, et cetera. All of that kind of stuff that goes on when your identity is really not centered in Jesus Christ. If you'll notice with all of these particular pockets I spoke about, and there are many more, as you know, pockets of uh, social identity groups, pockets all over the place, little balkanized groups of people who want to have their say in the world, and they'll do whatever they want to do in order to get the point across, i.e., this uh, mail bomber that just recently got caught um, having sent very, very, Uh, suspicious packages to the tune of over 20 to different uh, high-ranking persons in in our uh, public society as well as politicians uh, and what have you. Why did he do that? Because he had a political bone to pick. He probably does have mental issues, no doubt about it, but he has a political bone to pick. He would fall under the category of an extremist that leads to terrorism. Well, really, is 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 he that far beyond the average individual that would be willing to allow their temperature to rise to such a degree that they go to cussing and fussing and getting red and, and, uh, and, and, you know, calling you out of your name as I've had people do on this program uh, around presidential elections, simply because I didn't vote for uh, Donald Trump or I didn't, you know, vote for uh, President Obama um, you know, holding to certain biblical standards about qualification, qualification for men ruling. That's where I stood and I shared it with you. I'm always fascinated as to what stirs people up. Sunday, I preached a message for the third time on our Lord's greatest invitation of all time. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will find that I am meek and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You'll find rest to your soul. That's what he said. And what I helped our congregation capture around that imperative, which comes off as an invitation, is this. When Christ calls you to come to him, he's actually calling you to submit to him as a sovereign Lord. 
Submit to him as a master teacher. Submit to him as a husband and submit to him as the surety of yourself. Submission in such a way and humility in such a way is that you've got to take off the yoke that's on your neck and put his yoke on. You see, when he calls you, he doesn't call you to freedom per se, but subjection to him for which he says the promise is rest. Now, when we come to Christ, ladies and gentlemen, in faith, when we come by the new birth, when we come because we've been born again and faith now has, as it were, metabolized into a yes and amen in our soul. And we see Jesus for who he really is. We are yoked to him. And when anyone is yoked to anything, guess what? Three things occur. It becomes personal. It becomes intimate and it becomes public. Personal, intimate, and public. And what I said in the course of that message that I shared with them, which is, I think, the the message that I've preached over the last three weeks on the topic of take my yoke upon you and learn of me, uh, I haven't heard a message of exposition to this extent in years, if at all, in terms of really taking the proposition seriously. He said, take my yoke upon you. That means he wants you to be bound to him and him to you in a permanent union that is analogous to an ox being bound by a yoke. Now, as I stated, that yoke is public, it's intimate, it's personal, intimate, and it's public. Everybody knows when you have a yoke on your neck. In fact, the yoke controls you. The yoke constrains you. The yoke conforms you. And the yoke defines who you are and that publicly. All of us have a yoke on. Some people's yoke is politics. Some people's yoke is entertainment. Some people's yokes are making money, secularism. Some people's yokes are uh, the, the, the whole agenda, again, of social justice covering the spectrum from gender all the way to poverty and racism and everything in between. A yoke on the neck of that person by which they are personally, intimately, and publicly given to that particular order or institution or group. And everybody knows who they are. I'll ask you, does everyone know by the yoke that's on your proverbial neck spiritually that you've been bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and that you are owned by him as Lord You are taught by him as master rabbi. You are wedded to him as husband. And you are committed to him as your surety. Does everybody see that yoke? Now, out of the abundance of the heart, doth the mouth speak. You guys know that. So everyone really gets to know what kind of yoke we wear by what comes out of our mouth. And I say all that as I open up the phone lines, one 367 We want to be careful every year this time as we move into uh, what I consider a wonderful season of the year. It's always mixed at some point with some political issues, harangings, et cetera, uh, but then also mixed with wonderful but problematic elements, too, as well, such as holidays and, and uh, seasons, and, and these can be tough for us. I'd love to help you negotiate and navigate your way through the difficult seasons over the next two or three months. If you have a problem, if you're having a challenge, if you are moving into, like I said, a more anxious level of existence, a more depressive level of existence, melancholy, um, uh, kind of you're getting tunnel vision, you are boring down into uh, an isolationist uh, attitude. Let's talk about it. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. By the way, I'm getting ready to go to a break, but we're going to have a fantastic Daughters of Grace a meeting November 17th. You really don't want to miss it. If you've ever thought about it, I know some of you have, have visited, visited with our sisters on Saturdays when they've had their DOG, but others of you may have not. And you've been wondering, you know, should I go? Can it benefit me? I'm not part of that church. You don't have to be. We have a lot of sisters who come out who are not part of grace. We, you know, that, that is a, a, what we call an ancillary issue. Our doors are open up for people to come to benefit from what God is doing for us. We're not exclusivists in that way. But this particular DOG is going to be outstanding. 
I'll talk about what it is in a little bit. Uh, and then there are a bunch of other things, too, I want to talk about. All right. And so I'm going to take a break. There are two lines open. one 367 Two lines open. one 367 We're getting ready to jump into it. You're listening to the Monday edition of Lifeline. Your host, Jesse Gistan. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back at the time, 523. There are two lines open, one 367 want to read an article that might also set some context for our discourse today, as I already opened up with a monologue about how important it is to keep our perspective particularly in a pre- in our present world system with with real political fervor and fever and passion driving men and women to express themselves i talked about a yoke earlier to express their yoke their personal intimate political affiliation their personal intimate public uh, uh, expression of conviction about this that or the other thing is a yoke when we are given to a thing sacrificially and the world can define us by it. It's a yoke. And uh, I am calling you and I, if we're believers in Christ, to make sure that the only yoke that the world really sees controlling and defining and determining our life is the yoke of Christ. Any other yoke beside that yoke is idolatry. And one of the evidences of that idolatrous sort of departure from the uh, influence that the yoke of Christ, which is easy and is light, is designed to do. The influence of Christ's yoke is really to conform us to the image of Christ. This is how you know the yoke is yours, because it shapes you and forms you and transforms you. And thus, when you think about how Christians often act in the world of politics and social issues, the rancor and the, you know, even vitriol, the definite hostility and the dialectical sort of uh, extremism that takes place, the the terminology and the uh, in, inflammatory speech that, that basically betrays uh, persons who call themselves believers under these different yokes is a cause for pause. So I want you to hear this article. I'm only going to read part of it. I'll take a break and then we'll come back again. But I want to set a context. This is called Civic Conversation. Civic Conversation. Subtitle, uh, Aristotle and C.S. Lewis. It's not a conversation between the two. They didn't live together, if you know anything about the era of Aristotle and C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is more of a contemporary. Aristotle's existed way before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The point that the author is making, I think, is Mike, Michael Watson, is that C.S. Lewis, in his perspective on politics, was Aristotelian in his view. That is, uh, Aristotle had a very strong view about politics and how important uh, a role it played in civility, in, 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 in morals, and in ethics, and even in some level of spirituality. Uh, don't have time to go into it deeply. But I do want you to hear this, because you and I live in a world where politics has such a strong sort of emotional and moral commodity to it that when people ask you about your political convictions— Sometimes you'll come off as if you are an apostate because you don't give that much attention to it. Well, listen to the quote from C.S. Lewis. As long as we are thinking of natural values, we must say that the sun looks down on nothing half so good as a household laughing together over a meal or two friends talking over a pint of beer or man alone reading a book that interests him and that all economies Politics, laws, armies, and institutions, save insofar as they prolong and multiply such scenes, are a mere plowing the sand and sowing the ocean, a meaningless vanity and vexation of spirit. Collective activities are, of course, necessary, but this is the end to which they are necessary. C.S. Lewis, uh, in an article called Membership in the Weight of Glory, Now, the author says one of the most painful realities of this seemingly interminable political season, that's the one that you and I are living in, Micah says, has been witnessing and feeling the rise of rancor and frustration toward our family, friends, neighbors, 
who thinks so differently than we do about this or that political issue, and you and I even might talk about religious issues, or this or that political candidate, this is not unique, nor is it as bad as it has ever been. We're not anywhere near bleeding Kansas or brother against brother, but still, there are, were, normal rhythms of electoral disagreement and political bickering and partnership in American politics. There are or have been limits. We have a buildup and an election and the arguments and the political fighting. And then things settle down somewhat, even as we know there's another wave building on its way out in the deep. Thanksgiving even be, can even be awkward around the table. But by Christmas, we're good. And he's right about that. But those limits feel like they're being stretched, broken, obliterated during this season, starting with the 2016 presidential election and most recently with the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. The latest exclamation point is Hillary Clinton's statement that Democrats should give up on civility. I heard that particular comment. Not so sure that I know what the context is. This is me speaking. President Trump is also known for his uh, is also known for not being as civil as he ought to as well. So uh, Watson is being even handed. It is not just that we cannot see why our friends or family members supports a particular candidate or position. It's deeper than that. It's an inability to fathom such support coupled with a deep-seated fear that perhaps we don't really know this person, that we cannot really like this person, that deep down we find in ourselves a mix of loathing and incomprehension battling with what our better instincts tell us should be our natural affection for friend and family. This gets to one of the takeaways from Lewis's quotation above. Lewis was, among many other things, an Aristotelian, yet his quotation is both Aristotelian Aristotelian, and strikingly anti-Aristotelian. It's an anti-Aristotelian in that Lewis didn't think getting involved in politics was inherently wrapped up in what it means to live a flourishing human life. And I agree with that. Just because you don't get wrapped up in politics don't mean does not mean that you are not living a flourishing human life. Aristotle did. Though his politics differed a great deal from our public square, politics, Lewis thought, is purely instrumental. And this is his version of Aristotle at work. Politics is not an end or telos in itself. It's a means. It's what allows for the truly good things in life, like reading a good book, drinking a craft beer with a friend, or eating a family meal. When working, when working properly, politics is your electric company or internet service provider. You don't think about it that much because you're more interested in what it allows you to do. You think about it a great deal when your power goes out or your internet goes down. Hence, Lewis is quipped from that same membership essay that a sick society must think much about politics as a sick man must think much about his digestion. One doesn't have to completely accept the politics is essentially instrumental to appreciate the point. To the extent that we all allow political differences to seep in and toxify our relationships with friends, family, even citizens sharing the same neighborhood, we have allowed what is instrumentally valuable, that is politics, to poison what is intrinsically valuable, that is people and relationships. He makes an excellent point. And the point that I'm pressing home that I uh, want to engage you in as we move into other topics is how important is it for you and I to be able to see the issues, uh, determine whether or not they are issues worthy of our investment, even our yoking with other people to engage in or not. As far as I'm concerned, after almost 60 years of existence on planet Earth, I'm becoming much more given to an aloof, very strategic position of politics, as I have always been. But I'm more persuaded now that we are becoming more and more shallow in terms of 
uh, moral and ethical and spiritual qualities and much more committed to and driven by the superficiality of social groups and identity markers and institutional significances and political parties and the like as if our kingdom was of this world. And what is the loss in all of this in terms of what is the what is the liability? What's what 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 becomes now the casualty for the man or the woman who professes to be a Christian, but is so driven by the news that they hear, whether CNN or Fox News or or cable news or even just your regular uh, local channels. When you get so driven by these issues that, um, you know, you get hot and heavy. You uh you uh you you get out and act, or you do something, or you're calling people on the phone, or you're you're emailing, texting, Facebooking, and all of the other social stuff that you never find me on. What what is the takeaway? What is the loss? What's the liability? What's the casualty? The witness of Jesus Christ. The uh, efficacy of the gospel in terms of its impact in people's lives. The uh. Even the relevance of it. See, if you swim in the murky waters of politics and its trend and its waves, you really do diminish the significance and relevance of Christ in people's lives because you are basically saying, let's try to handle this trend. Let's try to handle this wave. Let's try to control this trajectory. If we do, then we can have our best life now. But that's not the way the church operated over 2000 years, except the apostate church. So what say ye about this season, this time, this era that you are in as we head towards 2019? What yoke are you operating out of? What kind of attitude and disposition will people see over the holiday season and over the um, the fall season in preparation to the new year? Are you, you going to be upset November 7th because your man didn't win, your woman didn't win? Um, you're going to lose your religion? Or are you going to demonstrate that my kingdom is not of this world, as my master said, and I voted, but I didn't fight. I exercised my uh, constitutional rights, but I didn't put all my chips in that bag at all. Ultimately, this is what believers truly hold to who have a deep-seated commitment to the glory of God in Christ and the word of God. The sovereign Lord God Almighty reigns over everything. He rules the hearts of kings. He raises them up. He sets them down. He puts who he wants to in. And really, that's all that matters. And he has never once asked you or I, what do we think about it? It's going to happen if we get involved or not. But he would certainly have you and I to pray about it. Then vote. But make sure you don't change your yoke. I still got two lines open, one 888 taking all your questions, all your comments, all your observations about whatever for the next hour and a half on the Monday edition of Lifeline. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back at the time, 6, uh, 539 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. You're listening to the Monday edition where we just kind of open the phone lines and and deal with issues that are either on my heart or um, on your heart. And I have two lines open, one 888 Let me go to line number two and talk with James from the Bay. James, are you there? Yes, sir. How you doing? Bro? I'm great, man. How are you? How are you? Good, good. I mean, I'm just doing good, man. I'm just glad you're, uh, you know, again, having this forum. So hopefully people are listening can engage in it. Uh, like you said, that was an excellent question. I mean, excellent question to pose, you know, to our listening audience, audiences that are supposed to be believers to understand that, you know, rise or fall, November 6th is not going to change. November 7th, if the Lord delay is coming, it shouldn't change our position on, uh, on who we are. Right. You know, because you, our yoke is light, our burden is it. Yeah. You know, and our father tells us that. Yeah. At the same time, if our people are giving to the media, you know, for their entertainment, to beware because they're going to be manipulated by propaganda in these next upcoming days, you know, with everything going on, you know, with the election and, you know, 
because he was trying to gather votes. And unfortunately, uh, the control of the media is leaning one side and not to the other. You know, it'd be different if I could get a healthy information from both sides and make an intelligent decision, but that's not going to happen. That's why I say the propaganda that's out there, you know, from things to the, you know, to the fake bombs and, uh, that were sent out, uh, you know, just, just tugging at people's emotional strings. And at the end of the day, they're just trying to get votes. But none of that should move us as believers. I mean, it's like at the end of the day, we know where our kingdom is. We know what we're striving to get to. And we'll hopefully what we can do as believers is change the narrative, change the conversation so that's the words where it should be focused on. Right. Right. I I think C.S. Lewis did have a a proper perspective on it, that politics must be an instrument and not it means not an end to itself, not a telos or um, a nirvana or a uh, utopia. If you will, we do believe that politics is important. God established government, as you said. But the author of this article that I wrote, uh, I read Michael Watson, uh, used the metaphor of Internet and um and electricity and other components, which we know that government has to regulate so that there is a fair expression and share of those gifts that are discovered by wise men uh, that can be employed for the good of the whole of society. So we pay our taxes and we pay our bills and our lights are on and our phones are working and our Internet is working and other resources that we take for granted. But they're tools they are not an end in itself. They are tools by which we should have the free option of selecting different sources of data information and, uh, uh, you know, whatever that kind of uh, resources providing for our own welfare and benefit. As, as C.S. Lewis said, to maintain an environment in the context of freedom where we can actually uh, pursue our highest goals. I am totally in agreement with the importance of politics from the utilitarian standpoint. Uh, Government must protect its its citizens. Government must therefore also monitor the way business works, economics work, education works, um, and a few other things, the right to own a property and to be able to manage our property in a way that it doesn't get take, taken away from us by crooks and and uh, and scandals. And then freedom for us to exercise our rights religiously, because the better we are as persons, the better we should be as citizens as well. And so I'm totally in agreement with that. The tension comes in, as you and I know, um, with the method by which media and propaganda coming from multiple sources, schools, entertainment, uh, politicians themselves seek to propagandize through manipulation and distortion of the facts. I, you brought it up. I didn't, you know, I didn't get into uh, whether or not the bombs were fake and whether or not, you know, they were just a ploy, uh, you know, just because, you know, it's almost a given when you send out 20 uh, so-called mail bombs and, and none of them explode uh, with any uh, credible, uh, you know, um, information given back to us in terms of every one. It was suggested that George Soros had a bomb sent to him and he had his maid take it out into the field and uh, detonate it. Uh, I don't know why maid. Maybe maybe it would have been a maid servant. But they have no forensic evidence of the bomb being detonated. So we don't we we can't take that one and, and do anything with it. But as you said, what what it's de- designed to do, based upon how close we are to the election, is try to shift people's view emotionally and psychologically to compel them to take a particular side. Now, that might happen with people for whom, as I stated. This world, their kingdom is this world. Everything in this world matters to them at that level, but not for the believer. I think you're absolutely right, James, not for the believer. The believer should not waste one emotional fiber uh, being overwhelmingly driven by a political agenda that they abandon the centrality of their identity in the person uh, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, being yoked to him. And I think we have a lot of recovery to do as a Christian society along that lines. Oh, absolutely. But also, 
we're, we're never without we're never without hope. Uh, there's a couple of names you know I'm going to uh, drop on you, especially next time I see you uh, of, of young people. Like you say, the media is not obviously is not telling the whole story because media comes from the word medium and it's not coming down the middle anymore. But there are other there, there are other media outlets that are you know putting narratives out there that gives us more of a complete picture of what's going on or, or what's available out there. Uh, I was just watching some of it today, and it's a, there was, I guess there was a march some six months ago about, uh, I can't, I think it was, the, the theme was exiting, like, for example, the Democratic Party, not not promoting one over the other, but they're starting to think more. They're starting to, okay, with people such as yourself, they're exercising people to think a situation through. Yeah. And yeah. this one sister was, she was speaking more in terms of, yeah, I'm here as a uh, young uh, black African-American woman expressing my conservative views with my First Amendment right, and I have my Second Amendment right to back me up if you want to try it. The forefathers, uh, they fought for that right. And, and you know, in a certain context, James, I'm going to be honest with you, in a certain context, that's the only way you can defend your you're right of even free speech because back in the day, uh, as a as a black man or an African American African American woman, had you simply uttered your mind and uh, you were outside of masses' will, um, that could have been that could have been your life. And so, what that young lady was doing was uh, merely asserting a privilege that had to be fought like hell for up to now. Unfortunately, so I get it. No, by the way, James, I I really do uh, venture through a, a bunch of different uh, lesser known, but I think much more on the ground sources of data, like you would, and uh, to 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 get a bigger picture of what's really happening. And for me, more particularly, not with young people. Not with older people, but rather, but with younger people. The younger generation, I think, has a very clear view, be more objective, more postmodern, and therefore not as convicted by uh, some of the trendy things uh, that that are nostalgic uh, oriented with older people. They 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 want uh, they want something to happen that's much more uh, akin to. Uh, taking care of their rights and freedoms and giving them an opportunity for real prosperity versus uh, what we know is a lopsided economic system where the robber barons have all of the money and the rest of us down here on the ground are really struggling to make ends meet. They know intuitively that somebody's been, you know, raiding the the, the chicken coop uh, and and, and they want change. And I, I see a lot of that going on just as well as you do. Absolutely. Listen, I'm going to let you go. Thank you for your observation, bro. Always love it to hear from you. Looking forward to chatting with you soon. Uh, Ken and Deb, hold on. I've got two lines open, one 888 We're just talking politics, civility, and the yoke of Christ. Uh, you can give up the former two, but you can't give up the last one. It's your only hope for glory, the yoke of Christ. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. We are back at the time, 552. Two lines open, one 367 We're talking civility in discourse, public discourse. Um, the need to may, remain objective about political issues that can be heated up and become a yoke on people's necks by which they are governed and defined. And the need to be able to have a... Um, a proper and healthy view of government and its function for our freedom, rights, and expression. I want to read this article before I go to the line. Uh, and this is the extended article from my, from my, my opening monologue, Civic Conversation, Aristotle and C.S. Lewis. Politics and friendship. Politics and friendship. I suspect part of the reason our politics feels so personal these days is because politics is inevitable, inevitably about the good. This is another lesson from Aristotle. As he writes in the beginning of his politics, now Aristotle's wrote a lot of books. I have them. Every state is a community of some kind, and every community is established with a view of some good. And so far as we love what we take to be good, this is the precursor of Augustine's latter definition of a commonwealth being defined by what the community loves. The connection between our politics and our personal relationships then is due to what 
means what it means to love and how love is intimately tied to friendship. And friendship is inextricably tied to our politics because everything political aims at a good. That's an assumption. We can leave it there. In book four of uh, Aristotle's called Nicomachean Ethics, which uh, I also have, very interesting book, Aristotle describes three types of friendship. The first is a relationship based on usefulness. We all got those kind of friends. We need them. We are friends with someone else because the person can benefit us in some way. And for the friendship to work, we also offer some benefit in return. Society cannot really work without this sort of relationship. It's almost business in nature, as you can see it. But it hardly qualifies as friendship, as the author is saying. No one would be delighted to hear from a friend that is that his that this was the foundation of the friendship that is you know if he works for me he's my friend if i work for him i'm his friend but if we don't then you know forget it the second level of friendship thrives on the delight or enjoyment of being with a particular person now this is much more psychological and emotionally rewarded the second level of friendship thrives on the delight or enjoyment of being with a particular person now I, That is moving more into the biblical concept of friendship. I'm sure you know that. This is certainly a step up from the uh, utility friendship, though even here we can sense something amiss. A true friend sticks closer than a what? A brother. Even when he or she, uh, even when we are not at our best, when we are not a joy to be around. And thus, Aristotle leads us to the third and most fundamental form of friendship, that which is grounded on love for the good of the other person for his or her own sake. This friendship is most valuable and rare and is at once both outwardly focused because it is for the good of the other person and inwardly connected because a one-way commitment to another person's good is not friendship. If Aristotle's is right, then our truest and deepest friendships require a commitment to the other person's good and the other person's commitment to ours. He goes on to say in closing, true friendship would then depend on a shared understanding of what is good, which then makes possible the conscious commitment to that person's good, even when such a commitment has no perceived utility and is less than pleasant. Woo. What is he really hinting at? The gospel, which is what I'm saying, that we ought to exercise the highest good as believers in that we would want men and women to know the good love of God in Christ, even if it's not pleasant. Let me go to line one and talk with Deborah in Oakland. Deborah, are you there? Deborah, are you there? Line one. All right, let's go to line four and talk with Ken before we go to the break. Ken, are you there? I'm here, Pastor Gassan. How are you? Great. What's your common observation or thought today? Well, I have an idea of uh, a Christian uh, proposal which is uh, be more civil and which would get away from the kind of extremism we have over the immigration issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, one, um, we, we have um, okay, we have this caravan heading for the border. So, you know, if, if they if we um, use force against it, then obviously the the, um, the administration loses. On the other hand, the, Letting a bunch of people in who are unvetted is, is, has a lot of negatives. So one way to get away from either extreme, which is kind of a false dichotomy, one way to get away from that is, would be to um, have each side do something beneficial for the other, for, uh, which is in line with our Christian philosophy of uh, we're supposed to always esteem the other more highly than ourselves, right? Yeah, I'm not sure the connection between your previous proposition and your last statement affirming it. You were simply speaking about making sure that if we're going to have people who are struggling from a third third world country come into ours, that they ought to have some kind of utilitarian purpose behind that potential um, exchange of relationship. That's utilitarian. That's what Aristotle was talking about. And I fully agree with that. You don't have to be somebody I love and want to be with for you to become an American. I do not. I do agree with you, Ken, that it should not be anti uh, meritocratic. And that is to say people shouldn't just be able to come here without merit. They shouldn't be able to just come into any country without demonstrating the possibility of becoming a good citizen and therefore being a productive worker for the benefit of our society. 
Okay, right. But the other, the, I, I thought a different kind of exchange possible between the two countries, which would facilitate that. Help which, me. Uh, actually, which would be, um, okay, Mexico does something for us. Maybe they, they have a, enormous oil reserves, something like the third or fourth largest in the world. So they give us a big break on oil prices. We build pipelines, and you know they help, they favor us that way. And in return for that, what we do for them is. We help. We do something called technology transfer, which some of the Mexican presidents have requested, and that is to say, we make them into a first world country. We give them, you know, show them how to do dams and infrastructure and telecommunications and electronics, and and we help build them up so that there's no longer this third world problem there. They have they're like Canada. You know, how many problems do we have with Canada? Right. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. So that's each one. One country does something for the other. And both countries benefit. What do you think about that? No, I like it, but uh, you, what you're where you're coming from, Ken, is absolutely prudent, biblical, and I would definitely say it, it would hold to a uh, Judeo Christian Christian ethic. The Old Testament would assert that kind of equitable relationship with the nations surrounding Israel as well. Um, but let me ask you: Do you understand why that has not happened in our relationship with Mexico for the last several hundred years? Well, um, I know that President, uh, in, in, in 1977, President Echeverria of Mexico requested that type of thing from the incoming Carter administration, and the answer they got was no. So it's really, it's really been on the U.S. part that the, the no has come from, unfortunately. I'm asking you, do you know why? Well, yeah, because they want to keep cheap, some, a lot of people want to keep cheap labor coming in, of course. It, that's that's only one of a litany of different things that in the American interest on the level of politics ultimately at the end of the day becomes shameful. Um, it's really strange, and, I, and you're smart enough to know this, that politics makes strange bedfellows as the colloquial goes because the fundamental interests of governments um, are not really mutual um, it's always going to be to the advantage of the more uh, powerful uh, maintaining leverage over countries that are more dependent and needy. And Mexico is too strategically uh, buttressed up against America for us to give them the kind of uh, opportunity for mass power that they would break away from any kind of relationship and, and hinge themselves to other countries that are more powerful. And, and, and hence, right up on our borders, we would have problems. America has been dealing with this kind of um, lack of faith uh, effort with many smaller countries because they have all acts to be free, grow, mature, develop, become first-rate countries, and have never, ever really been able to operate on that level. Uh, when you talk about Canada, um, Canada has definitely capitulated, uh, you know, from the beginning to, to America, and America never has ever felt that there would be a threat if Canada became a first-rate nation. But not Mexico. Mexico has too many tentacles in, in, in um historic communism uh, and socialism uh, for America to, uh, you know, help it become some kind of strong man that might end up opposing America's interests. And that's just the way that it has been for 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 um, centuries, man. America is not going to allow certain countries to reach that level of prominence. They have to remain a servile state, uh, you know, albeit with certain uh, apparent uh, appearance of of, of uh, independence. Okay, well, that might be true for the elite, but I think the average person would agree with I you agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. I totally agree with you, but therein is therein lies the uh, conflict between uh, the common people and, and our government. Therein lies it. Our government sits on a panel looking at the world through a prism with which we don't comfortably engage. And as such, they make decisions not in the best interest as they would perceive it of people on the ground, but the best interest of America as a political entity that has the ability through both war and economics to shape the world and the trajectory of the world for hundreds of years to come. And with that level of power, they don't think about you and me. All they want for you and I to do is to maintain the yoke of uh, being an American and therefore working to make sure our tax dollars uh, get put into the kitty for them to be able to continue doing what they're doing 
I agree with you totally. I think that that is the best way to establish relationships with human beings um, where, where where both can prosper and thrive uh, and live a, 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 a life of nobility and dignity. But the reality is, according to the Bible, Ken, nations, political nations are beasts, beasts, wild, predatorial beasts, not your not your domestic beasts, your wild, predatorial beasts. Daniel taught us that Zechariah taught us that. And certainly John, the revelator, has taught us that they are beasts and they go to war and they destroy one another. And it's all about power and all about control. And as um, civil as it might appear on the outward, it's true even today, even with America. Thanks for the call, though. It's, 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 it's a good idea. We can employ that locally, uh, intramurally <laughs> within our American borders. But uh, our military and our government, uh, the executive branch, <clears throat> they're fighting wars. Your president is always a Caesar. He's always a general. He's always a Nero. Obama. Bush, Clinton, Trump, all of them, they will always be, too, because we don't have an ethic or a policy that's really rooted in the Bible. It's rooted in a man-centered system that requires a dog-eat-dog policy to survive. And that's why our kingdom is not of this world. I got to take a break. When I come back, I'll deal with Deb and Mario. I've got two lines open, one 888 Two lines open, one 888 Glad to be with you guys. I uh, hope you're enjoying our conversation. You can add to it, one 888 I'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 